0: Built Not Born, episode 116. Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Ryan Mannion. Ryan Mannion is the sister of Silver Star recipient, First Lieutenant Travis Mannion of the United States Marine Corps, who gave his life for our country in Iraq on April 29th, 2007. Ryan is the president of the Travis Mannion Foundation, and author of the book, The Knock at the Door. In our conversation today, Ryan describes Travis's amazing story of heroism and the ultimate sacrifice Travis paid while defending our country. Ryan and I discuss the Travis Mannion Foundation, which became one of the largest veteran service organizations in the country. Ryan's book, The Knock at the Door, which she co authored with fellow Gold Star women, shares their inspiring journey. How they handled and dealt with the tragedy of losing a loved one during wartime. Ryan has an incredible story to tell. The Travis Mannion Foundation does incredible work with its 9-11 Heroes Run, its Honor Project, and its Character Does Matter Project. I have a link in the show notes. Uh, If you're looking for a great cause to donate to, please consider donating to the Travis Mannion Foundation. It's an amazing story of the people that pay the ultimate sacrifice for keeping our way of life going. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of thought-provoking interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Ryan Mannion, president of the Travis Mannion Foundation and author, of the knock at the door. And remember, life is built, not born. Ryan Mannion, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, It's an honor to have you, Ryan. Ryan, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do?
1: Well, who am I? Wow, that's kind of a Broad question. I think first and foremost, I'm a mother. I've got three beautiful children. Um, and I I also serve as a, a township supervisor for Doylestown Township. Um, and I am the president of the Travis Mannion Foundation, a nonprofit uh, which was uh, created after my brother, First Lieutenant Travis Mannion,
0: was killed in Iraq in April of 2007. Wow. If you wouldn't mind, Ron, I would love to share Travis's amazing story of the heroism that he did, Silver Star winner, uh, gave his life in Iraq in 2007. If you could tell that story. If we could talk about how your mom maybe started the foundation, but then you took it and brought it to just an unbelievable level. And then also to discuss uh, your book, The Knock at the Door, which is just amazing And if we could just touch base on some of the programs that you have at the, uh, at the Travis Malium Foundation, like the Honor Project and the Character Does Matter, if we could touch on that, that would be awesome. Sure. First off, I'd like to start back all the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up?
1: Uh, We grew up everywhere. So my dad's a retired um, colonel in the Marine Corps. Being a military child, you move around a lot. We were both born, Travis and I were both born in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, most of our childhood, we lived in California for a little bit when my dad was at naval postgrad school. And most of our childhood was spent in, um, right outside of DC. Uh, my dad was stationed at the Pentagon. So we grew up in the Alexandria area. And then when my dad left active duty, he did 11 years active duty, 19 years in the reserves. We moved to the Philadelphia area. My parents are both from the Philadelphia area. My dad went to Lower Marion for high school. My mom went to Conestoga. And we moved back here and so did middle school and high school in Central Bucks School District right outside of right outside of Philadelphia. And my brother went ended up going to LaSalle College High School and he loved it there. He formed some really strong friendships there, uh, people that I'm still very close to today and are are part of our lives and our family. And after uh, going to LaSalle, Travis went to the United States Naval Academy for college. And so for those unfamiliar, when you go to a service academy, you go to school for free, but your payback is that you serve five years in the military, required mandatory five-year service. And so- Travis, the day Travis graduated, he commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And what's interesting, though, about that time is Travis entered the Naval Academy pre-9-11. So there wasn't a lot of thought. And my dad's, most of my dad's career in the military was spent during a very peaceful time in our nation's history. And so for us, I don't think there were a lot of reservations when my brother entered into the Naval Academy, we weren't thinking about war or big conflicts because there really weren't any. And, and of course, September 11, 2001 changed all of that. And this was a group of students that entered in and in, in probably one of the most peaceful times in our nation's history. And then they were graduating knowing they were immediately going to war. And that's, that's what Travis did. He graduated, went down to TBS in Quantico and then, uh, by two thousand and five, he was in Iraq on his first deployment.
0: Got yeah. Growing up, the was service something that Travis always knew what he was going to do. Is that something from five years old he knew he was going to serve, or is that something that he figured out in high school? How'd that come about?
1: Yeah, I mean, he always talked about it. I actually, I'm trying to see. Oh, I have, I have it right here. I'll grab it. This is this is a picture of Travis from second grade. And he says, I, "I want to be a what does it say? I would like to be a pilot in the Marine Corps. I guess wow. you had to put what you wanted to be uh, when you grew up. So I guess at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, he wasn't a pilot, but yeah, he 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 certainly had ambitions of being in the Marine Corps from a very young age. I mean, when you grow up in a military family, you're surrounded by." A lot of men and women who serve. We grew up on military bases, and so it's just kind of part of our DNA at that point.
0: Yeah. So growing up, you have I understand doing some research. You're, you're about 15 months older than Travis. Correct. Right? So yeah. what was what was your relationship in high school? There was a couple of funny stories I heard, but what was your relationship like growing up? And how were you like, and how were you different?
1: We were very close. I think you know. Again, growing up when we were younger, we moved every couple of years, and so. Um to have kind of that built-in best friend we were close in age which made us very close we we had a lot of the same friends um but we were also very different uh Travis was really super driven and even at a really young age he was he was driven towards he he set goals he had ambitions i was much more apathetic and didn't really care about too much in high school other than, you know, where the, the best party was going to be on Friday night. But that was kind of our banter back and forth. Like he would try to push me to go run a 5k and I try to push him to come to a keg party, you know? And so we we would find that balance in in that respect. And so, but we, we got along great. I always say, we we're 15 months apart, but he was really kind of the older sibling. Mm-hmm. Like he certainly set the example. I didn't really follow it, but he tried to set it. And so, uh, but we had, a, we had a fantastic relationship.
0: He, he by all accounts is such a stud. And there's a funny story I heard where one of your friends may have not had a prom date. And you basically said, Do you take her from there? Like you're going?
1: Yeah. You know, I had, I had a friend in high school who didn't get asked to prom and she was kind of resigned to, you know, being in the pictures with all of us, with all of our dates. And, and somebody said like, well, why don't you just ask your brother to take her? And, and I, I said, Trav, you know, you got to take, you got to take, I won't say her name, but you got to take so-and-so to prom and, and, he, without a, like, without a blink, he was like, all right, I'll do it. And I remember he kind of came home. He had come home from a wrestling match. He ran up, got in the shower. My mom had like gone and got him a tux from like men's warehouse. And he was just like one of those guys that was always willing to take one for the team. You know, he'd just kind of do whatever he could to help out. And that was just kind of in his nature.
0: Wow. If you, let fast forward a little, there's so much to cover, but so fast forward, he joins the Marine Corps. Yeah, Uh, he's a first lieutenant. He's serving Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, I think the Anbar province. And uh, if you take it from there, uh, what happened on April
1: 29, 2007? Sure. So this was on Travis's second deployment. So he did a first deployment in Iraq, uh, successful deployment, came back. Travis was a logistics officer. And so when he came back, he was kind of looking for more. So he ended up joining the 1st Recon Battalion with the Marine Corps, which is, for lack of a better word, kind of special forces with the Marine Corps. Um, From there, he was attached to a MIT team, which is a small group of Marines. Um, They were sent into Iraq for his second deployment and embedded with the Iraqi army. So they were there to help train the Iraqis to defend themselves right and and to defend and protect their own country and he was excited for that mission we certainly knew it was going to be different than his first deployment where he was largely kind of behind the wire for better lack of a word this time he was he was living among the iraqis and there were on april 29 2007 they were to go out on patrol and in fact he wasn't supposed to be on patrol that day he was actually assigned to hand out school supplies to iraqi children kind of a humanitarian thing building those relationships and rapport with the iraqis and it was actually one of his other lieutenants came in and told travis in the morning like hey i'm i'm not in a real good headspace today i'm supposed to go out on patrol and and he said that travis without blinking said hey take my job. I'll go out on patrol for you. Again, not a second thought, like whatever I got to do to help you out. And so Travis went out on that patrol with the Iraqis and, and his and his Marines and they were ambushed. One of his Marines was, well, actually his medic was shot and uh, the medic was shot. Travis ran out, exposed himself to the enemy and, and pulled him back. To safety and then another one of his marines was shot and travis for a second time exposed himself to the enemy fire to run and get him and pull him back and they were kind of covered if you if you read travis's citation they were taking fire from like three sides and it looked pretty grim for the outcome of where they were and so travis exposed himself for a third time to enemy fire to set off his grenade launcher to push back the enemy and he did but he during that time he was hit by a sniper bullet on the side of his chest you know came underneath his chest plate and was killed he was the only fatality that day and the citation for his silver star you know the last line reads that his deliberate actions ultimately saved the lives of everyone in his patrol and so you know for us Obviously, it's the worst news you can possibly get, but in the same token, it wasn't surprising that, again, Travis stepped out, stepped up, and did what he had to do to take care of his team. So my dad always used to say to him, you know, you don't have to be the first one in every building, knowing full and well that he was always going to be. So that was just kind of who he was.
0: Uh, So getting back to who he was, you tell a great story, I believe maybe even your husband We'll tie our Philadelphia Eagles into this. They may be at a game. And I think maybe your husband is trying to talk him into, hey, you don't have to go back a third time. Yeah. Could you, could you yeah. share that story, please?
1: Sure. So this was before he left for that final deployment. Um, he was back in, he was stationed in California at Camp Pendleton. And he came back to Philadelphia. And our family, even though we lived all over the country, my parents are from the Philadelphia area, we're diehard Eagles fans. When we got back here, the first thing my dad did when we moved back to the area was get a season tickets to the Eagles. So the, it's, you know, we bleed green, I'll say. And so uh when Travis was home, just he had a short leave, just a couple of weeks, and he wanted to make sure he went to an Eagles game. And he did. He went with my husband and they were leaving the game. And my husband said, you know, it was weighing so heavily on his mind that Travis was going back to Iraq. And he said, Travis was like super lighthearted, like having a great time. And as they were leaving, they were at like a flight of stairs. And my husband turned to Travis and like jokingly said, hey, Trav, what if I push you down the stairs? Maybe you'll break your ankle and you won't have to go back to Iraq. And he said, Travis, who had been really kind of like lighthearted and jovial the whole night, like just kind of stopped and then like stared at him and got real serious and he said you know Dave if I don't go back to Iraq then somebody much less prepared for the job is going to go in my place if not me then who and of course my husband comes home and he's like god i feel like such a jerk i'm like telling your brother I want to push him down the stairs and this is the response that he gave me and and what we realized was that it was kind of the first time that Travis spoke those five words or that any of us heard him speak those five words it was the Motto, the mantra, the ethos that he lived by every day. When you look back over the course of his life, it was always about if not me, then who. And you know, and then when you go fast forward to his final day of life, it was if not me, then who. Like if he wasn't going to step out there, who was going to do it? You know. Mm
0: -hmm. So yeah. What a stud! Oh my gosh. From there, if I could tie in your book, "The Knock at the Door," Mm -hmm. and and your account of where go, where you go from like a, I guess a blue star to a gold star family, like that knock at the door. Summarizing it, you're maybe at a business meeting and you're maybe you have documents in your hand and, and like your phone keeps ringing and you think something's wrong with your daughter. Would you mind sharing that story? Sure,
1: so the day Travis was killed, I, I was a small business owner. I owned a clothing boutique in Avalon, New Jersey and was about to sign a lease on a second store right in Doylestown. Um, I was at my parents' home that day. They actually had a bunch of our family and friends over. My mom decided to have an impromptu barbecue that morning. And so just started calling people. It was a beautiful Sunday in April. And I ran into town to... And I literally was standing there about to sign the lease on my second store. My phone kept ringing. I had left my 10-month-old daughter home at my parents' house. And so I finally picked up because... Obviously, my mom's continually calling. I picked up the phone and just heard screaming and come home, come home. And my first thought was that something had happened to my daughter. You know, I wasn't even thinking anything had happened to Travis. And so I drove that mile home. Actually, a friend drove me home. It was about a mile back to my parents' house. And I pulled up to the driveway and i got out of the car my dad was standing there with one of his friends who was a a senior marine that that i had grown up with and it didn't register right away like why lieutenant colonel gardner was standing in my parents driveway and i looked at my dad and i said where's the ambulance because i thought that i thought that my daughter choked or hit her head and and so i said where's the ambulance and he looked at me and he just said travis was killed and so it was I always thought, and I I've said many times, like, I I didn't have a lot of fear when Travis was in Iraq. Number one, I thought he was invincible because he was just larger than life. He was the strongest, fittest guy that I knew. And, you know, while you were hearing that there were a lot of, and this was during the surge, this was a really Tough time in, in this conflict. There was a lot of men and women that were losing their lives. And we would certainly, if you think back to that time period, you know, they would share those names on the nightly news. Like you would see the, the men and women who had, had given their lives. But for me, I, I looked at it kind of as like a needle in a haystack type situation. Like I understood that men and women were dying over there, but I just, in my heart of hearts, I thought it's never going to be Travis. So it was, it was, we were shocked and devastated. And it was
0: the toughest day of my life for sure. Wow. No, thank you for sharing that. Now the, I remember like back in, if you go like the Saving Private Ryan, back in the day, they would type this like awkward telegram up and they and they would send it. Now, like the knock at the door, what your book is uh, titled, they literally, they send someone to the house to knock on the door. Correct?
1: They do. And, you know, ours was an interesting situation largely because my dad was still in the Marine Corps. He was a colonel in the Marine Corps at the time. And so, you know, one of his best friends, who's a general, saw the, you know, got access to the reports that came in for the casualties. And that morning, very early in the morning, he was reading the casualty report and saw T. Mannion. And he called my dad's other friend and said, you know, Travis was killed, we need to get the right Marines, you you need to be the one to go to the house. And so it ended up being my dad's good friend that came to the house, along with a Marine that graduated with my brother from the Naval Academy. And so typically, it's just you have two two service members show up, you don't know them, like, you know, and my, and my dad actually when my dad actually said, he saw um his name's Corky he calls him Corky that but Corky Gardner he saw him walking up the driveway and he said to my mom oh corky's here did you call them and invite them over and my mom said no and then when they saw the other marine walking in full uniform with corky that's when they knew because they don't they don't knock at your door if your if your loved one's injured they knock at the door if they've been killed. If if your loved one's been injured, you get a phone call. It's like, hey, your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife, they've been injured. This is where they are. This is the current situation. And they knew pretty immediately when they were walking down that it was bad. Wow.
0: And What the, when you pull into the driveway and you you just hear that, I mean, everything just has to go numb, huh? Like, is it disbelief? numb? like, what, what are the feelings that go through your mind when you hear something that you think could never happen?
1: I mean... I remember, I, I remember I literally fell to the ground at the top of the driveway and I just started screaming, it's not fair. And it was all I could think like, it's not fair. It's not fair. And I, and I was just screaming that. And I remember it was my parents' neighbors. Actually, my parents' neighbor actually came and like lifted me, you know, felt like forever it was probably a minute lifted me up off the ground and walked me down the driveway. And like I said, our house was filled with our friends and family. So it was it was chaotic, but it was also like everybody was already there, right? It wasn't like we were just alone in this house. My grandmothers were there, my my aunts, my uncles, our family friends, but it was also devastating because we were all there together learning this news at the same exact time, which was really kind of crazy. And for us, we didn't know any details. My dad asked right away what happened. And, you know, they, they said, we, we don't have details yet. We just know that he was killed early this morning. And for that you're just kind of like, and then you go through the stages of like, maybe they got it wrong. Maybe mm-hmm. it wasn't him. Are they sure it was Travis that was killed? Like, are we sure he's dead? You know, there's all those things that are kind of running through your head. And then slowly, but surely, you know, all the details kind of came out for us over the
0: next few days. So when the details come out, how unsurprised were you on the details of it? Like going out three times, like volunteering for a mission. He didn't even have to go on. He's supposed to hand out toys. He's running out for three different exposed himself, I think, three different times to save the medics, save medics. And so everyone else lives and he sacrificed himself. How unsurprised were you when you heard when the details finally were revealed? I mean, extremely unsurprised. It was just. It was just who he was.
1: And so, like, you knew that there wasn't going to be a situation where he wasn't that that required someone to step up where he wasn't going to be that person that stepped up. In fact, two weeks prior to him being killed, he received a Bronze Star with Valor for another situation where there was a chemical attack um, that had hit their barracks. And um, he ran up to um, lay cover So that the, so that they could come in, the helicopters could land and evacuate the injured and like, and the Marines that were there with him at the time sharing that story, they said he was the first one to run up and say, I'm going to lay cover so we can get these guys out of here. So it was just, it was just in his nature. It was who he was.
0: Uh, One of the characteristics of people like Travis, like they influence you like in ancient Rome, they had Cato, and there was like, what, like, find yourself a Cato, or like, what would Cato do? And he would influence you like hundreds of years after they were gone, they would influence you. You tell a really cool story in the book where I think Travis and your dad may have agreed to do a marathon. And then months later, like, your dad's like, I'm doing it. And then it gets all the way to you. And uh, could you yeah. tell that story? I thought that was a great story.
1: Yeah. So it was probably a couple weeks after, well, a few weeks before Travis was killed, he called my dad from Iraq and said, hey, dad, how about we run the Marine Corps Marathon in October? Now, my dad had run the Marine Corps Marathon a few times you know, prior, but he likes to say he had hung up his marathon shoes. You know, He wasn't running any more marathons. And he said, but when your son calls you from Iraq and says, let's run a marathon, you're like, okay, yeah, I, mean, I, yeah. guess, I guess yeah. we're running a marathon. And so- yeah him and Travis signed up for the Marine Corps Marathon. And that a couple of weeks after his death, you know, we were sitting in my parents' house. There were still a lot of people here coming every day. And, and my dad said, Hey, you know, Travis signed up to run the Marine Corps Marathon. Um, I'm still going to run it. I'm going to run it with his bib and my bib. And I always say it was like this scene that played out from a movie because like, Instantaneously, like everybody was like, I'm running it with you. You know, Colonel Mannion, Uncle Tom, like whoever was in that room, they were all like, Yeah, we're running. And I'm just like, got my head down, <laughs> you know, staring down, like, Yeah, great, you're all running. Right. And then I realized everything got silent and everybody was looking at me. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm running a marathon. And that was, I started my, you know, Travis was killed April 29th. I started my marathon training June 1st and then, and trained until the end of October and crossed the finish line. Were you a runner? No, I, I was not only now, listen, I was a, I was a college athlete, but I hate running. So, (laughs) you know, I played lacrosse in college and I played first home, which is archaic. It's like low, low, low attack. Mm-hmm. So I was I was what you would call a classic cherry picker. Yeah. Everybody do the work. Get me the <laughs> ball. And I'm and you're score. Yeah.
0: right?
1: and um, you know, so and I also had just given birth to my first child. You know, I was 10 months after giving birth to my first child. I was, you know, probably 20 pounds overweight. I had probably run I probably hadn't run more than a mile in the last five years. Like that's how far removed I was from running. And so, and the first day, in fact, of my training plan, which I downloaded Hal Higdon's couch to marathon training plan. There's literally a training plan for people that are like, have not run ever. And the first day of the training, it was run one mile. Okay. And so I ran one mile and I all but threw up at the end of that mile. Like that's how tough it was for me. And, but for me, it was what I needed because I needed something to focus on. Mm -hmm. I needed something to turn my energy towards. And so it was really cathartic for me to do that training each and every day. Like that was my focus. Okay. What do I have to run today? And so it was a big part of the healing process for me, for sure.
0: Wow, that is awesome. That first mile is rough, isn't it? That first go around. Oh my God. And you
1: know what? And I look back now and I've since run a bunch of marathons, half marathons, and the first mile always sucks. Yeah. So I always say that for anybody looking to get like the first mile sucks in anything. It's, yeah. it's the first mile is always hard. Even when you're running 26, it's, it's a hard mile. So
0: here's a, a, a story I just love. Uh, I, I picked this up. One of the podcasts are on or interviews are on. What did you listen to? when you were training, what did you find that you listened to, uh, during the, uh, d- during your training?
1: Well, I actually listened to Travis's iPod that he had in Iraq with him. So it came back in his footlocker, um, with all of his stuff. And, and, uh, so I had his music that he was listening to in Iraq, which was, you know, it, it made me feel so close to him. Cause I knew like This is and Travis like loved music. Right. So I knew like anytime he could be listening to that thing, he was. And so to have that, um, that was like super important to me.
0: How motivating is that? So you're listening to the music he was listening to when he was on his third tour in Iraq. His second tour, yeah. second tour, set. Wow, yeah. second tour. Yeah. So what what was on the playlist? Some of the songs. What was his What was his jam?
1: Uh it was a lot of classic rock. Um, you know, the one of the one of the songs, and I loved it when it popped up, and I was like, oh, of course he has this song. It was "Stranglehold" by Ted Nugent, mm-hmm. and that was the song that he used to run out to on the wrestling mat at Lasalle. So that was his that was his like hype song was Stranglehold by Ted Nugent. And he would run out to that song and then it popped up on his playlist. And I was like, "Okay, here we go. You know, so um, some nine inch nails, Metallica, you know, it was about like down and dirty. Yeah,
0: that is. That was awesome. So fast forward one. Thank you for sharing. It's a great story. Um. Fast forward. So your mom one day wakes up, or one day decides to start a foundation. Can you tell what she did and what your initial thought process is why she was trying to do it?
1: Yeah. So really, the foundation kind of started immediately after Travis's death. It was actually, you know, you think back to two thousand and seven. I say like, you know, social media was like MySpace, right? Facebook. Yeah. Operated largely just on college campuses, like yep. nobody had Facebook. It wasn't. It, we weren't this virtual world that like we mm-hmm. are now. And so, my parents' friends had put together, you know, in lieu of flowers, donate to the First Lieutenant Travis Manning Memorial Fund at First Trust Bank, and here's the address. So, you think about it now, it's very easy for like a Go Fund Me link to you know travel really quickly. World, yeah. But this was like. You know, you had to read the paper to actually see. And lo and behold, after you know, we kind of started figuring things out uh, a few weeks after his death, maybe a month later, First Trust Bank was like, you know, you have a couple hundred thousand dollars here. And we were blown away and we were like, Oh my gosh, and what are we what are we doing here? And so initially my mom said she wanted to do some scholarships at LaSalle, which we still do to, to this day and help out with some kids down at the naval academy so really looking towards where he where he went to school and, and and helping kids in that perspective but she very quickly filed for 501c3 paperwork and and created the Travis Manning Foundation by 2008 so less than a year later she was a fully recognized 501c3 charity and People say like, oh, I, I kind of took it to grand heights and, and made it really big. But, you know, she really set the vision. She passed from cancer in 2012. But from 2009 to 2012, she really drove forward what she envisioned this organization being. And and I just kind of took it and ran with it after her passing. Yeah.
0: How hard? I mean, I can't imagine how hard it is. I mean, you go through all that with Travis. and. Is it five years later, your mom passes? When, when your mom was running the, the foundation from 09 to 12, did you have ever have any thoughts like, hey, I'm going to pick this up and run with it? Or before she had her cancer diagnosis, is that something you ever had in your mind?
1: No. I mean, I started working over at the foundation about a year before her passing, but I always say I was like her executive assistant, you know, I was, I, I, I certainly like she ran the show, she was in charge, and I was just helping. And so I i felt like I had some big shoes to fill. I felt a, a lot of pressure when she passed, and the board of directors asked me to take over, uh, largely because, you know, it was this organization that bared my brother's name, and so, you know, I had to make sure that I, I did right by that, but it was also started by my mom. And so I was certainly overwhelmed in the beginning.
0: Wow. Amazing. What, one of the things you write about in the book, uh, The Knock at the Door, and I thought that we could touch on this briefly here. You speak about grief and you speak how don't fight it, but allow it to transform you. Could you speak? To, I found that pretty powerful. I never heard a phrase that way before. Or so many people are like trying to get through their grief. When's the grief go away? And can you just describe what you wrote in the book and just your thoughts on it?
1: Yeah. When you're grieving, and I and I think, you know, each and every one of us goes through some source of grieving over the course of our lives. If we are to to love is to grieve, right? We're all gonna lose people we love. But I lost my brother three years after my brother, his best friend, was killed in Afghanistan, and then my mom. And so in the course of five years you know, I lost three people very close to me. And, and I think, like you said, a lot of us wait for grief to kind of go away. Like how can we, how, how quick is this going to end? But what you realize, like losing my best friend, I had to change. Like I could not be the same person I was when he was here because he was no longer here. And so I used the the grief that i was feeling to really spur me to become the best version of myself and i always say like i live every day trying and attempting to live a life worthy of the sacrifice that he made for for me and for all of us and it gave me a a deeper understanding for kind of the finite amount of time each and every one of us has on this earth and to take advantage of living lives fully and wholly. And I don't know that that would have happened if if he would, if he was still here, I'd probably still be that apathetic teenager that didn't care too much about too many things. And so I I feel a certain responsibility to, you know, do the best that I can, be the best that I can, and, and be of service to others because he's not here to do that.
0: Just touching on the book again, uh, you wrote that it took you 12 years to be able to write the book. Yeah. Yep. How did you know it was time to write it?
1: You know, I feel like I had spoke about it so much. I started to get into a place where I could really talk openly about it. And at mm-hmm. that point, it was somebody that I had approached and said, are you ready to like kind of put pen to paper? and And it was. And ultimately... I was ready to write the book because there were so many people talking to me about loss and was getting the calls like hey my my friend lost her sister to cancer can you talk to her and and finally I got to this place where I was like I can actually provide my way of how I dealt with grieving and like the knock at the door like I explain a lot in my book like the knock at the door for me was a literal knock at the door mm-hmm. you know I had Two men knock at the door to share the worst news that I had ever heard in my life. You know, the most devastating thing, my best friend was gone. But each and every one of us received knocks at the door, maybe more uh, figuratively than literally, but we all receive knocks and, and in many different ways. And, and I think it's about knowing and being aware of how you're going to respond to those knocks that they when they come. Because I was fully unprepared to receive that knock.
0: Mm-hmm. You speak a lot about to living life with intention. How would you describe living life with intention? And like what's that mean to you?
1: Well, I think for a lot of us, we can get caught up in just living life, right? And And then that means like not really kind of thinking about if we're being fully intentional about the decisions that we make, the choices that we make, the goals that we set. And so for me, I became very intentional about after his death, I became very intentional about what I wanted my life to look like. Mm -hmm. And again, something that I didn't fully realize and probably wouldn't have thought about prior to losing him. But I look back and I'm like, gosh, Travis was always living his life with intention,
0: you know? If we could touch on the amazing work you're doing at the Travis Manion Foundation, one of the projects that I thought were just so cool were the Honor Project where you pay tribute to fallen service members throughout the country. Could you describe what the honor project is at so-called? Cool.
1: Sure. So the honor project is our way of making sure that the you know our our greater society honors and recognizes what Memorial Day is all about, and that is, to honor the men and women who have given their lives in service for this country. We actually bring volunteers out to veteran cemeteries across the country to place tokens at fallen service members' grave sites. And, you know, the nice thing is that there's a lot of families who have their loved ones buried across the country and don't have the opportunity to to make it there. And so they can actually register through our website, they can register their loved one's names. And then we make sure that somebody on Memorial Day is there to honor and pay their respects.
0: That's so cool. Another initiative you have, there's so much of going on, the 9-11 Heroes Run, which I believe your mom, Janet, started. And she had an audacious goal at the beginning. She wanted it to be what like, the breast cancer run.
1: Yeah. So we started the run in Doylestown in 2008. We had maybe 300 400 people which i was like blown away i'm like oh my gosh and my dad and i talked about it as wouldn't it be cool if we had a th- 500 1000 people eventually come to this race mm-hmm. and my mom said well i think we should have one of these in every city across america and you know i want this to be a the like the Susan G. Komen race for the cure for our military and first responder community and here we are today, 15 years later, we are in the midst of our 9-11 Heroes Run uh, race series. Uh, we will execute almost 85 5K races across the country in the month of September alone and have about 60,000
0: participants. Wow. Yeah. And that's incredible. And that, that kind of goes back almost to that that thought that you write about, that fearless ignorance, where you st- just go do uh, all like audacious things. You have to have that fearless ignorance to start something like that, right? Even to say something like that.
1: You have to be a little bit more apt to taking risk and possible failure, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes you can overthink things to where you don't even try them, right? And so for us, it was like, let's just see where this thing goes. And again, the cool thing about this race series is... We'll close out. Our last race is October 7th in Doylestown. And so we, we bring it all back to where it started. And our Doylestown race location still is one of our largest race locations in the entire country. And I'm talking about Doylestown, Pennsylvania competes with Charleston, South Carolina, Houston, Texas, like big cities, right? Awesome. And little old Doylestown still brings out a few thousand people. So it's pretty cool.
0: Let's go, town. Let's go, Uh, and then that go go into that where you you speak about failure. And I think a quote I wrote down uh, from the book you write: "Failure is a bruise, not a tattoo." So cool. Could you you speak to that and that thought process?
1: Yeah, I think for a lot of us, the idea of failure—at least for me in the beginning, when I took over the foundation—I failed at a few things, Mm -hmm. and for a short time, I allowed those failures to define me. And I I think I've had some really tremendous mentors throughout my life and really dialing it back to understanding that you can't succeed without failure. So if you don't fail, you won't succeed. Yeah. And as opposed to letting failure define me, I started to realize our lives are a series of successes and failures. Yeah. And so if we look at failure, it's like it's temporary. Failure is temporary. It's a bruise. Yeah. It goes away. And so really looking at your life and not being afraid of failure is the only way you're going to ultimately
0: succeed. Yeah. No failure, no nothing, right? Because you don't put, you don't risk anything, no risk, no reward, no nothing, right? you got to put your butt out there. How about this other program that caught my attention? The Character Does Matter program. Can you speak to that?
1: Sure. So that's our flagship program at the Travis Mannion Foundation and, um, That program is really about um, making sure that our next generation understands what it means to live a life of service and develops their character. And so we actually train veterans to deliver character education to our nation's youth. We last year alone, almost 62,000 youth went through our program. And we go and as veterans take off their uniform, they don't lose that desire to serve that desire to serve is still there. And we ask them to continue serving with us. And and we do that by training them to deliver character education. When you think about veterans, when you think about men and women who serve, there are some soft skills that aren't taught in the civilian world, right? You don't enter into corporate America, and they're giving you briefs on courage and integrity. And, you know, that's not part of what you're learning, right? Uh, that's what our men and women who serve like. They're it's it's in their DNA, right, mm-hmm. to to understand these core principles. And so, it would be a disservice for us not to ask them to continue paying that forward with our next generation.
0: Yeah, no, that's well said. A few moments ago, you spoke. To Travis's roommate, Brendan Looney, he spoke at one of the services for Travis a few years later, and then ultimately where they wound up together. And your dad wrote about it in his book. You could speak to yes. that.
1: Yes. So, Travis's roommate at the Naval Academy was um, Brendan Looney. They were the best of friends, and and actually, that marathon that I ran, um, that first marathon right after Travis was killed, Brendan was our guest speaker. So Brendan stood up and talked about Travis and he was there for our family in a really big way after Travis was killed. Sadly, in September, actually just his anniversary just passed, September 21st of 2010, Brendan was killed on his 59th combat mission in Afghanistan. He was a Navy SEAL and Brendan and Travis are now buried side by side in Arlington National
0: Cemetery. Wow. And then I believe your dad wrote about that in the book, The Brothers Forever book. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, i link to that. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. How about as you look out to the year ahead of all the stuff you have going on with the Travis Mannion Foundation, w- what's the most exciting project you're working on now?
1: I think for us, it's we have different campaigns that we run every month. So every month is is new and exciting. I think the biggest thing for us is just to continue to see the, the growth that happens with our volunteers, with our donor support. Here we are today. Again, we started in the Philadelphia area. It was my mom and it was my best friend from high school, quit her job to work with my mom. They sat at the kitchen table. My mom bought her a computer and here we are today. We have 85 employees, over 200,000 members, and have supported over 75,000 veterans. So, um, you know, our goal is to continue to grow and scale and provide support to more families of fallen service members, veterans, and to continue instilling character in the next generation.
0: Wow. That's great. Just a couple of questions here just to wrap things up. Um, these are questions I ask all the guests. I'm just going to tear them a little, a little differently for our conversation. Okay. How about this, Ryan? You shared so many incredible stories about Travis and the foundation and just what the heroes do that serve and protect our country. If you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be?
1: I think for me, it's the lesson that I try to apply every day. And that is those five words that Travis spoke, if not me, then who, and it's what we talk to kids about when we're talking to them about developing their own character. Like think of this idea. If you, if you take those five words and you try to have attempt to have an, if not me, then who who moment every day. Right. And that's a moment where you lead by example. And and I don't talk about that in the big sense of like with Travis running out and saving the lives of others, but like in the small things we do every day, if we make that decision to step forward, I think it could have a, a huge ripple effect.
0: I ask every guest on the show, if they could spend a day with anyone famous, not famous, alive or dead, who would it be? If about if you could spend another day with your mom and Travis, what would you do? And what would you tell them? Oof.
1: Gosh, I i mean, I feel like we'd just be sitting around a table talking about everything that's happened over the last 15 years, and I'd be uh, asking them if we're doing it right, what we need to be doing better. I always say, you know, and of course, that would be my answer. If I could spend the day with anyone, it would be the two of them, right? But what I always say is about the Travis Manning Foundation is there's two things like, Travis would, if Travis was here, he'd be serving right long, right alongside me. I know he would be so into everything we're doing. Um, but the one thing he would ask me probably to change is the name because he, among, among many things, Travis was, he was an incredibly humble individual. And oftentimes I hear him saying like, stop talking about me, you know? And so, but What I would say back to him, and I often say, is like his name represents this generation of men and women who Mm. serve and sacrifice for us. And and it's important for us to have a name and a face to this post 9-11 generation. So, um, yeah.
0: Wow, that's great. I'd like to end with a quote I wrote down from your book. Uh, I quote Ryan Mann, and I quote, I was cruelly reminded how short, sweet, and precious our lives are and I refuse to squander the blessings I have been given. I choose to live life with intention. I feel compelled to take advantage of the time that I have left on this earth to lead a life worth living that both Travis and my mom could be proud of. The guest is Ryan Mannion, the president of the Travis Mannion Foundation. I'd like to thank you for joining us. It's been an honor. Thanks so much, Joe. Brian, if people are looking for you and the Travis Mannion Foundation, how can they find you? How can they help out, support? You can go to
1: travismanion.org to learn more about the work that we do. And you can find me and the Travis Mannion Foundation. I'm R. Mannion on um, all social media, Travis Mannion Foundation. We're on everything. You can find us all there.
0: I'm going to link all of them in the show notes. But Ryan Mannion, thank you. It's been an honor. And uh, thank you for uh, all you do. And thank you for all the Gold Star families that make this country as great as it is. I appreciate you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate you tuning in. If you could, please leave a review for the podcast. That goes a long way with spreading the word and connecting it to a bigger audience. And if you get a chance, check out our new YouTube station. Google my name, Joe Chikarone or Built Not Born, and catch the latest episode on YouTube. Appreciate you. Talk soon.